I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, we're we're past Halloween. How's how are you doing? Are you are you surviving? <laughs> I'm doing great. Although uh, you know, the Halloween decorations are still up in our neighborhood. There's some real Halloween heads, and also I passed by a film set for what we do in the shadows in Toronto not too long ago. So it feels like Halloween is actually just arriving. It's a prolonged Halloween. There's no Thanksgiving in November here in Canada, so it kind of feels like it's Halloween until Christmas. That's that's this year's vibe. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, just draw it out. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Why not? Why not keep it around as long as you can? Christmas gets so many days. Um, why not mm-hmm. have a few more days of Halloween? Uh, in my yeah, neighborhood, the 12 I'm 12 days of Halloween. Yeah, 12 days of Halloween. In my neighborhood, I'm getting, I'm counting down the days until someone takes down their their uh, 15 foot skeleton that they got. And uh, when they do, <laughs> it's going to be a huge bummer. But I know it's coming any day. Just put a big Santa hat on top of that. It seems so easy. Keep it out all year. That's what I'm saying. Just dress it up for different different uh, holidays. Yeah, put a big Santa hat on it, and then put a name tag on it that says Tim Allen. There you go, because he's dead, and somebody else yeah, is the Santa Claus. Yeah, and there's some other Santa running around, exactly. Although he does <laughs> not have a, the, uh, <laughs> the Santa Claus who does die in the original Santa Claus just sort of evaporates with no bones, yeah. also dribbling. Well, in the mythos of Santa, as we all know, uh, Santa does not have any bones. He's an invertebrate. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's how he gets down the chimneys. That's right. His underneath his skin is just uh, pockets of fluid he can kind of slosh around to uh, <laughs> morph himself into different and, shapes. <laughs> milk and a bowl full of jelly. It's right in there. <laughs> oh my god! Wow, this is off to a great start. We're doing great so far. Um, okay, well, I'm di- I'm distancing myself from this conversation about Santa Claus and his mm-hmm. h- and his lack of bones. Though we'll come back to it in a different podcast. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, this podcast, as you can tell already, has a lot of niche interests. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that before we even started talking about Santa, so that's something. This podcast has a lot of very niche interests, right? Everyone knows this. Uh, chief amongst these is uh, Latin American politics and socialism. We love it. This is the thing that we are very interested in for many reasons. Um, so people who are interested in those niche topics like us, uh, the past week has been, it's been a big one. A lot of things have happened (laughs) that are interesting to us because of that. Um, namely Lula da Silva beat out, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in an extremely close, too close, in my opinion, runoff election in Brazil. (laughs) Uh, can't believe it's so close. Uh, people who have nothing but rocks in their brain voting for this Bolsonaro guy for sure. Um, but, uh, Lula won in uh, I think that's great. I think it's good that he won. Lula, Lula is an important figure in the Latin American left, and he's probably just he's probably an important figure in socialist politics in general, um, especially after this election. Um, but because Lula is such a big deal and uh, this re-election as, uh, as the president of Brazil is very historic, we're going to take a beat this week and do a roundup of some of the important uh, the important journalistic and um, some less journalistic takes about what Lula's victory means. And then after we do that, after we get the takes out on the table, we're going to give you the Magnificast certified um, Lula religion content that uh, you know is out there, but no one else is giving you. So <laughs> we've That's got right. You know, uh, 
usually we would have somebody like uh, Jim Hodgson to come on this podcast and tell you the real facts that you have to know, the things that you could go away from the show feeling confident you learned something. But guess what? We didn't do that this time. And that's primarily because we did find a European philosopher talking about Brazil and religion in the 1980s. And so you are going to have to hear about it at the end. So we thought we can fly solo on this one. It's finally in our wheelhouse. No problem. Um, before we get there, though, that's going to be the the thing, I guess, that I leave here that'll get you listening till the very end to find out who that is. Um, I thought we could do a little table setting up front, too, just to talk a little bit about uh, Brazil in general, why this is so significant. I'm sure everybody has seen Bolsonaro's name in the news in the last four years. He got COVID a million times. He was constantly constipated for some reason. <laughs> he was uh, <laughs> causing a lot of trouble. Was that? An emu bit him. <laughs> An emu bit him? Yeah, exactly. Um, you could not scroll your Twitter without finding some cartoonishly bizarre story about Bolsonaro. Um, and he was burning down the rainforest and doing all kinds of, you know, wild, wild stuff. Um, a bad guy, a bizarre villain altogether in our strange world that we're all living through. But uh, there's lots of other kind of things. We won't get into the full background of Lula and the saga of the, the Workers' Party and so on. But I think just basically it might help to say a few things about Brazil. For instance, it is, I think, the fourth largest democracy, however you'd like to define that, um, depending on how you sort of draw the parameters in the world. That's at least how like liberals talk about it. Um, it's also like an extremely powerful economy in the global south, one of the most powerful. And during Lula's first presidency, uh, the economy was so kind of potent that it was like overtaking uh, some significant countries in the global north. So it's like a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal whenever a left wing person is elected in Latin America because... I don't know, it's a country that is, you know, systematically neo-colonized and made dependent in this global economy that we have. Um, so it always matters when you can kind of break through that a bit. But it really matters in Brazil because it is gigantic. It is full of people and uh, the economy is probably going to help shape um, the 21st century in Brazil. So having a left wing person in charge of that with all the contradictions that it might entail is a much better situation than having Bolsonaro in charge of that situation. Uh, there's lots, again, lots more to talk about. You know, Lula went to jail. He got out of jail. It was a big comeback story. We'll get into that. But uh, just to sort of put on the table here, like having a left-wing person in power in Brazil is gigantic uh, for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, that's right. It is gigantic for all kinds of reasons. Um, but Lula is like, I, I guess, uh, not unproblematic as we'll talk about in a bit, um, which I don't know. That's okay. Well, it's not okay. He's, he's, he's unproblematic, but, but it's just, uh, it's part of those contradictions that we're talking about. But like, um, in terms of like leftist, he's like a real like working class kind of person. He was a, he was a metal worker in Brazil. He was like a trade unionist. He was like a union activist, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I guess I just want to say that he is like, I mean, you can go read it for yourself, I suppose. This is not like, the point of this podcast right now is not like detailing the character of Lula, but like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that he has like some, some real leftist street cred that, uh, mm-hmm. that is substantial. Yeah, right. You've got a bus driver in Venezuela. You got the middle worker in Brazil. That's right. <laughs> it's a real working class situation going on. Um, yeah. So some other background. Uh, Brazil, for the purposes of this podcast, is also really fascinating because it is one of the hotbeds of liberation theology in the 20th century and still today. Um, there were more base communities in Brazil than anywhere else. There were bishops in Brazil that really threw in with liberation theology in a big way. Some of your faves are Brazilian, Leonardo Boff, Clodovis Boff, Fraibeto, Ivone Guevara, just tons of important Brazilian theologians who helped shape the discourse in a big way. And a lot of that really matters for the story of Lula as well, uh, as Lula will say. We'll talk about that later, too. Um, the kind of grassroots organizing model that the bishops of Latin America proposed in the late 60s took root in Brazil in a significant way and in large part isn't responsible for the rise of the Workers' Party by any stretch, but is definitely a major contributor to those efforts. So it's interesting, too, if you're a person interested in the in religion and the left, that Lula is the product of not only the labor movement, but also in, in large part the product of liberation theology taking shape in a, a kind of electoral way, uh, again, full of contradictions in Brazil. 
Yeah, man, lots of contradictions as, as we're talking this out here uh, live <laughs> on our podcast. Um, but let's jump into some of it, I guess. Uh, so, like I said, this is not like a podcast about Lula's political career or his life. We're kind of just talking about the reactions and uh, what people are, are saying about this win, um, which, you know, both are important. But um, I, just some, some the bare bones that you need to know, I think, about Lula as like a figure in Brazilian politics is that, um, well, like we can start here. That the the first elections in Brazil after the dictatorship uh, were in in 1982. So like extremely recently, um, just before I was born. But <laughs> um, the uh, democratic elections are, I mean, not a new thing, but like the country's come a long way in a very short amount of time, and that's I think pretty fascinating within itself. Uh, Lula ran for a handful of like uh, different um, political positions, uh, you know, uh, shortly after. Um, being like a trade union activist, he was, uh, I think, catapulted into some of them, which is interesting. Um, but Lula becomes president in 2003 through 2010. And in those years, um, a lot of interesting things happen. We'll talk about uh, some of the troubling things when we talk about Haiti here in a few minutes. Um, but um, that's when he's president. And then he, uh, after the fact, he's in prison from 2017 to 2019 on these like kind of trumped up corruption charges that are... Um, reversed in 2019 he's like let out of jail um and then we're here in 2022 the next stop on the bu- on the bus and he's president again <laughs> and that's wild i mean he's not president yet he's he's won um but <laughs> bolsonaro is still you know he's in there he's in the mix uh doing his thing doing his dastardly deeds um nursing his uh bowel movements no doubt <laughs> that's right i'm sure he's <laughs> i'm sure he's very constipated um, but people have a lot to say about like what this Lula victory means and how we should be feeling about it or like how, um, uh, you know, like w- what's going to mean moving forward. And, um, there's a variety of takes and I just pulled out a handful that I thought were kind of interesting and, um, maybe helpful for wrapping our brains around it. So the very first one I think is just like a pretty standard left take. Um, this was, uh, published in Jacobin. It's called Lula's Victory is a Testament to Solidarity by uh, the Absolute Boy Jeremy Corbyn um, of the uh, UK Labour Party. Um, Anyways, so Corbyn's take is that like, I mean, Lula's great, I I guess, is kind of part of it. But um, (laughs) what he wants to remind people is that Lula didn't get there by himself, right? Lula is not like, um, (laughs) you know, he's not like a figure that that, like put himself there. Uh, Other people did it. (laughs) There's a whole sort of like movement and a whole big coalition of people behind Lula. And I think that's kind of what he wants to stress. So I'm going to read this bit here and then we can kind of talk about it and uh, see if it's important for us or not. So Jeremy Corbyn says this, I hope that those who are quick to jump on the bandwagon of Lula's victory will pay attention to the source of his success. Monday's result proves that the route to a greener and fairer future is not through triangulation, the marginalization of the left, or attempts to charm CEOs. It's through the mobilization of a multiracial working class coalition galvanized by the prospect of a government bold enough to do what is necessary to tackle the most important crises of our times. As more people are plunged into debt, insecurity, alienation, there's an ever-growing coalition of activists, trade unions, and social movements calling for mass redistribution of wealth, power, and ownership. Some of these networks have been decades in the making, and it would be a shame, to say the least, to waste their collective energy by sliding in with the status quo. As Lula's success demonstrates, who needs focus groups when you have solidarity? The global struggle for transformative change is waged by those whose names we may never know, and we owe it to every... We owe it to every single one of them, and we owe it to each other to win. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, there he is, folks, with a great a great take. Um, Lula's good. We love him. Um, for sure, it's a great victory, but you cannot overlook, like, the, um, you know, the massive uh, coalition of, of disparate groups that got, that got him in there, right? Like, a person does not become president because they're just, like, an, a great person, you know? Like, they get there because there's, like a huge network of people behind them. Um, and like he says, it's, you know, um, years in the making uh, for sure. So I think it's a good reminder whenever like a really popular figure kind of comes on the scene or maybe, maybe I'm like just inventing like a problem in my brain because I'm on the internet or something, but like uh, <laughs> the, the days leading up to the runoff election and then, you know, the day that Lula won, I saw a lot of people on Twitter and, like, other social media platforms, like, talking a lot about Lula and how great it was. And it did seem like people were kind of jumping on the bandwagon. Um, 
And uh, anyways, a good warning from Jeremy Corbyn that, uh, you know, jump on the bandwagon all you want, but you got to realize that the way people get into power, um, especially the left, is by a a big coalition of like grassroots organizations uh, building power and uh, figuring it out. Yeah, I think that's also the open question for what the new Lula term will look like, because the previous long tenure. So when Lula was out of office, um, he had a successor in the PT, Dilma Rousseff, who continued. And, um, you know, they eventually lost that election to Bolsonaro. And that loss is really complicated. Um, There were all kinds of really weird corruption charges that... um, are fishy to say the least in Lula's case we're literally thrown out right so I wouldn't say that the loss is like a pure referendum on the workers party by any means but at the same time I mean even in this last election like it was not a runaway victory for Lula right like they they did have to go to a runoff first of all and then secondly that runoff was not a uh, landslide victory as, as a referendum against Bolsonaro and I think the big question is like People don't seem to necessarily identify with the the Lula coalition, if you will, in a massive way beyond, you know, the the kind of minimum needed to get over the hump to become president. And there's a lot of critiques even in the Brazilian left about the PT and how it uh, ruled or maybe took for granted some of that support when it had such a long tenure, which is probably a danger for any long term ruling party, I would guess. Uh, but, uh, yeah, trying to see how the Lula coalition will maybe deepen that grassroots democracy, bring back some of the, the things that were lost under Bolsonaro and maybe find more horizontal ways of, you know, giving people participatory power, um, in the long term. I think that's going to be a really fascinating thing to see. And I think my impression is that Lula understands that, um, it seems. And, uh, yeah, I'll be curious to sort of watch and find out what kind of political innovations come out of Brazil in the next few years. Yeah, for sure. Um, It is just worth saying, too, um, you know, like Lula wins and people are like excited about that. And Lula is like, you know, he's the the candidate from the Workers Party. Um, But it is important to recognize, too, that in Brazil, uh, there are more left parties than just the Workers Party. Um, There's all kinds of them. There's there are, I mean, at least two communist parties. There's a bunch of other left parties that are splintered and stuff. And they, I mean, like you said a minute ago, Dean, like um, maybe just enough to get over the hump. They united behind Lula in the runoff to uh, in, in a in a hope for Brazil coalition to kind of push them over over the hump. That would you know give him uh, the oomph that he needs to beat Bolsonaro. But like the margin is so tight, <laughs> you know, even mm-hmm. even so, which is. Um, troubling to say the very least (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah i mean yeah it's a divided brazil you know we talk a lot about the divisions in u.s politics and so on i think that's true but uh the divisions in brazil are literally between like fascism in bolsonaro's case where bolsonaro was literally pining for the days of military dictatorship since he began his presidency like even on his campaign trail the first time around and so on So that's one side of the choice. And the other is Lula, this trade unionist who is invested in a a socialist tradition. So the divisions in Brazilian society are pretty, you know, the rift is is very wide. So (laughs) it's important to maybe keep the stakes in mind. Yeah, uh, it is important to keep the stakes in mind. Um, And I guess this is the last thing I need to say about this, but just it is an illustrative and like good teachable moment, I think, for the left in the United States that like. Um, coalition building is hard and it sucks and organizing is hard, (laughs) but like, you're not going to win without those things. So I guess there you go. Um, okay, great. Uh, you did mention a second ago, Dean, the like, uh, fascist and I mean, (laughs) probably more often ecocidal, (laughs) um, approach to the environment that Bolsonaro has. And I think that the environmental take from all of this is like not negligible, uh, for sure. Um, so in, uh, maybe in an attempt to, um, to practice a little, a little bit of that, like great, um, ecological, uh, solidarity that Leonardo Boff talks about, um, I think it's important to kind of bring that piece up and to give a little bit of like an explanation to, you know, like what the, what the, what Lula's win means like environmentally. Um, it could mean a lot more than this, but this is just, I think at least one aspect of it. 
So this is from a Vox article that got published right before the runoff. So this is like leading up to it in early October. And it's called Earth's Future Depends on the Amazon. And this month it's up for a vote, which is <laughs> a very scary title. <laughs> um, so the uh, in the article it says this. There's going to be two pieces I'm going to read together that are um, – I'm, I'm pushing them together. Um, contextless, but that's okay. Um, so it says this, uh, between August 1st, 2019 and July 31st, 2021, a period that largely overlaps with Bolsonaro's first three years in office, more than 34,000 square kilometers or 8.4 million acres disappeared from the Amazon, not including many losses from natural forest fires. That's an area larger than the entire nation of Belgium and a 52% increase compared to the previous three years. Um, it's also significantly more uh, compared to uh, when Lula was the president. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the article goes on to say that the destruction has been immense and the consequences severe. About 17% of the Amazon rainforest is now gone, according to a report from 2021. Scientists estimate that if the number reaches 20 to 25%, parts of the tropical ecosystem could dry out, threatening uh, the millions of people and animals that depend on it. The key here is that, like, the Amazon is, I mean, it's an ecosystem, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's one that I think is probably not fully understood by people. Um, so that, you know, if more of it was destroyed, it can have these, like, catastrophic uh, domino effects. Um, the largest rain, uh, the Amazon is the largest rainforest on Earth. Uh, the Amazon is home to a truly remarkable assemblage of species, 14% of the world's birds and 18% of, the, of its vascular plants. Um, many of which are found nowhere else. So if if those go, it's like uh, a huge uh, extinction event, basically. Losing organisms to deforestation erodes essential functions, including the production of oxygen and storage of carbon, on which we all depend, and undermines scientific discovery. Many medicines are derived from Amazon plants, yet just a fraction of the forest species have just been studied. So this is all important and worth saying because, like, this is one of the things that was at stake in the election um, because Bolsonaro would have you know, just kept on keeping on, right? That um, that 34,000 square kilometers uh, that, you know, has been erased from the planet, um, you know, would have just continued. So this is kind of like what is um, one of the things that was on the table, right? The rainforest is important for all these reasons. It's, you know, home to all these animals. But like um, in terms of climate, I guess kind of to put it sort of crassly, it's a giant carbon sink, right? Like it's a great mm-hmm. way to trap carbon uh, in animals and plants, all kinds of things. It does a lot of things important to the environment. And without it, all kinds of bad things would happen. <laughs> so I don't know. It's worth mm-hmm. saying um, in an attempt to, to uh, have a solidarity with all things, like Leonardo Boff says, uh, the environmental impact would have been huge had, uh, had Bolsonaro uh, remained in power. And I mean, it could still be bad. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but uh, at least uh, there's a chance, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Even like... You know, the rights of indigenous peoples and uh, other kind of environmental protections that were established under the Workers' Party, which may have been insufficient themselves, were rolled back intentionally by Bolsonaro. So there's lots of kind of intersecting or interlocking pieces here. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing to watch as Lula becomes president as well. How much can Brazil um, get out from under the thumb of an ecocidal global economy as well? Um, for example, you know, Lula is going to go to COP27. That's great. Uh, COP27 is definitely not going to do anything <laughs> binding or important, uh, but I guess good that he'll be around the table. Uh, but, you know, I often think about the challenge of global South economies is that they are trapped in a global economic system that makes them dependent on providing resources and goods to the global North in often destructive kind of industries. And Brazil is a huge piece of that. You know, for a long time, Brazil struggled to figure out and is still struggling to figure out how to have an autonomous economy, like something that works for them and not just for others. That was a a huge sort of, I guess, problem in Brazil leading up to the military dictatorship. They tried all kinds of really interesting economic strategies, kind of like a Brazilian Keynesianism uh, was the, the way to do it for a while. And then the dictatorship did its own thing. And yeah, lo- long story. But uh, these days, Brazil is so tied into the global economy. Uh, for example, like <laughs> Justin Trudeau quickly uh, uh, congratulated Lula on his victory. And that's great. Glad that he did that. But at the same time, like 
The Canadian government has been working really, really closely with the Bolsonaro government on all kinds of stuff. Like they worked with them on making uh, Brazil way more flexible and fluid for Canadian mining capital. That was like a big direct partnership that the Canadian government has been doing for a long time. Um, the same with the Canadian government's interests in Latin America, like Bolsonaro was a big part of the uh, the Lima coalition against uh, Venezuela and so on. So I think like, you know, hopefully Lula will not fall into that trap, right? Kind of doing the dirty work of imperialists politically across the region. And secondly, like, I don't know how Lula is going to find a way to stand up to those kinds of uh, uh, exploitative industries and investments that have been, you know, rolling into Brazil in the last four years and much more uh, earlier than that. So I think ecologically, Lula has his work cut out for him. But at the very, very least, I mean, he's not going to be pushing some kind of like aggressive destroy the Amazon campaign, which is basically what, <laughs> what Bolsonaro was doing. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, everything is still a bit tenuous. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, great. We have a left take, we have an environmentalist take. Um, let's talk about maybe like, uh, like an inter- uh, Latin American slash Caribbean take. Um, Dean, uh, you said a minute ago that, you know, um, hopefully Lula wouldn't just do the dirty work of like North American imperialists. And I hope that too, but (laughs) there's a complicated, (laughs) uh, history when in the past, when he was president, um, some of that dirty work definitely was done by his government. Um, I don't know. I feel like you're the, uh, international solidarity kind of guy. Do you want to talk about what (laughs) happened in Haiti and Brazil? Uh, Yeah, well, so we've talked about Haiti at length on this podcast in the past, so I encourage you to listen to some of those episodes. We talked with Jim Hodgson, we've talked about uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, one of the few liberation theologians who was elected as a president. Um, So Aristide was the president of Haiti uh, in the early 90s, and then was deposed in a coup. And then was the president again in the early 2000s and was deposed again (laughs) in a coup in 2004. And that 2004 coup was led by the U.S., France and Canada and kind of the United Nations as well. And it was very bad. Um, Not good. Not going to intervene in another country. And we've talked about it all length. But uh, the Brazil piece is that. After the initial wave of um, kind of, I don't know, imperialist forces, the the U.S., France, Canada, uh, after they kind of did their thing and got Aristide out, uh, Lula volunteered Brazil as the leader of the kind of occupying force to stay in Haiti um, and sort of stabilize it, which, of course, it did not stabilize. uh, And that has continued to leave a pretty uh, bad taste in the mouths of Haitian people for good reason. Um, And in fact, uh, the MST, which is the landless movement in Brazil, um, an extremely powerful, probably one of the most powerful social movements on the planet, um, they even published a a kind of interesting nuanced take on all this uh, on their website. So I'll just read a little bit about it. Um, They say, uh, Brazil led the United Nations military intervention in Haiti after the coup. Uh, This military occupation, almost uh, 20 years, is the cause of many crises in the country, including constitutional crises, the migration crisis, the health crisis, humanitarian crises, and more in Haiti. That is, lots of crises that, uh, you know, descend from this kind of disruption. Um, They go on to say, the Brazilian people can see that these same military personnel who were destroying Haiti in 2004 are those who today are in the Bolsonaro government who are trying to destroy the advances that the PT made in Brazil. That is why it's important that we express our solidarity with the Brazilian people, with all Brazilian workers, said uh, Camille Chalmers, who's the leader of a, a Haitian development movement. Uh, for this reason, social and political leaders in Haiti also see that a Lula government will provide better conditions to discuss adequate reparations and request the exit of Brazil from the infamous core group, which is a group of international representatives and diplomats from countries largely from imperialist corps led by the U.S., and is currently pushing for a new occupation in Haiti under the same pretexts. So there's kind of a recognition here that on the one hand, Lula for sure played like a major active role in the occupation of Haiti, 
But at the same time, people in Haiti, I think, are maybe trying to <laughs> sort through, like, well, you're probably going to get a lot further with Lula than Bolsonaro, nevertheless, especially as uh, imperialist countries are gearing up for another invasion of Haiti. Like, this is something the UN has been talking about in recent months, and uh, the US has also. So, I don't know. I, I think that's another maybe big contradiction and question. My hope is Lula would maybe re learn from that mistake and, and not take that kind of role but uh yeah it remains to be seen and i don't really know what lula has said since 2004 about that if anything but uh yeah we'll find out in the coming months or so yeah for sure well um <laughs> uh lula is definitely the, pe the best outcome in the situation but uh solidarity with the haitian people uh, for sure in the situation yeah i don't know uh pretty big of them though to be like rallying support for lula uh despite the past um like an interesting turn, I guess, for sure. Uh, not what yeah, you'd expect. I should, yeah, I should clarify, too, like, this is just one uh, one voice in Haiti among many, right? Like, I've seen also a lot of uh, Haiti solidarity folks and people from Haiti, like, just denouncing Lula outright. Yeah. Like, they don't have patience for him, and that's fine. Like, that's the right to say that, too. So I don't mean to, like, project that, oh, you know, the left in Haiti as some kind of unified voice is, like, rallying behind Lula in some, like, weird, I don't know, materialist reading of their own history or whatever. Like, some people are doing that, and some people aren't. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of interlift uh, debate for Haitians to have among themselves, I guess. But uh, all that to say, yeah, um, as the imperialist court is getting ready to think about invading Haiti again, it'll be interesting to see what Lula decides to do this time around. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's like a peasant organization that's kind of saying um, some of these things about Lula and also this like development organization. So you're right. Definitely not the entire left. I wouldn't want to speak for all of them. But I mean, an, an interesting nuance, I guess, to say the very least. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so there you go. Uh, um you know, um, something to consider as uh, the his situation in Haiti, I guess, continues to develop. Uh, yeah. um, okay, so we've we've got the left take, the environmental take, uh, an inter-Latin America slash Caribbean take, a lot of takes on the table. Let me let me give you another take. Um, so, like you said at the very top of the show, Dean, that there's also like a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of Christian people in Cuba, or in Cuba, holy shit. There's a lot of Christian people in Brazil as well. Um, and, uh, a big, a big presence of liberation theologians, um, from the past. One of our faves, Fry Beto, um, you know, the guy who wrote the book, uh, about, uh, talking to, uh, uh, Fidel Castro about religion. He wrote an essay that Leonardo Boff posted on his blog, a reflection on what Lula means, um, you know, in the context of Brazil at this moment. And uh, I'll read I'll read a piece of it here because I think it's pretty cool. This is also translated uh, from Brazilian using, using Google Translate, so <laughs> maybe not perfect. <laughs> um, so Fray Beto says, uh, affi afflicted with pareidolia. Uh, par sorry, let me say this. Pareidolia is like the... Uh, the weird evolutionary thing that lets humans uh, find like faces in patterns where they don't often, <laughs> where, they, where they don't exist, right? It's like uh, it's the in, the evolutionary development of us like trying to find like predators' faces or something. Anyways, that's what that word means. Afflicted with pareidolia, these people see communism in the red of the cardinal's robes. Bolsonarism is not a philosophical system; it's a religious sect around a military leader. He does not seek justice. He acts for revenge. No proposal, protest. It does not trust in the force of law, but in the law of force. It has no adversaries, but enemies. He values the police more than politics. It does not respect human rights and preaches violence. Don't talk, shoot. It does not believe in God, but it uses his holy name in vain. It considers democracy a hindrance, culture a Marxist breeding ground, diversity an aberration, criticism an offense. In order to govern Brazil, Lula will need to demonstrate exceptional flexibility. The Workers' Party tends to fill the void left by the, uh, pr like a previous left party. It will have to meet with the demands of the poor and the rich, but as the gospel warns, no one is able to please two masters. Um, I like this take because uh, Fry Beto is pretty realistic, I think, about what's going on here. Um, the Bolsonaro regime is extremely... Um, bad <laughs> it's very bad um it's fascist is is what he's saying um it's bad it's fascist and also it poses significant problems for lula moving forward 
and uh, Lula will have to definitely like choose a side. I mean, I like the invocation of uh, the uh, of Matthew here at the very end that no one's able to serve two masters. It's really important because uh, you know the the country is divided. There's going to be all of these like um, moments where he'll have to be very flexible, but some places you'll not be able to be that flexible, right? You'll have to choose a side. And uh, anyways, I appreciate that particular uh, channeling of the gospel of like figuring out what this might mean. Uh, Flexibility is important. You got to recognize how tense the situation is and how dangerous the situation is. But at the same time, uh, you have to pick a side in the end. And uh, a good word, I think, from Fry Beto. Yeah, and worth maybe contextualizing in Beto's uh, life history as well. Um, Beto suffered under the military dictatorship. He was imprisoned and uh, has written at length about that experience and afterwards has become a strong voice for liberation theology and for the poor. He also uh, has had a pretty interesting relationship to the Workers' Party in general. Like uh, Leonardo Boff, for example, has been a pretty huge Lula guy forever. Like he's out there doing the Lula rallies and Beto has too. Like it's not that Beto hasn't been a a friend of Lula's, but I guess my impression, which maybe not quite right, but just as an outsider, my impression is that Beto has been strategically kind of more reticent to like throw his weight behind Lula in a more direct way. Like he works a lot with the MST. He works a lot with Cuba. You know, he's sort of positioned himself as maybe like a, Uh, further left kind of not necessarily like in the role of a critic of Lula but you know maybe just a little more distance than some other liberation theologians and I think you see that come through here and building off his own experience having lived through the the military dictatorship um, in an important way I think he obviously has earned a, a kind of unique voice in the conversation so neat to see him doing that uh, religion has been a, a flashpoint in Brazil. The uh, Both Bolsonaro and Lula were running around to all kinds of denominations uh, in the lead up. Like there was article after article about them meeting with evangelicals, with Catholics. Um, there's some extremely funny pictures of Lula hanging out with like Franciscan friars <laughs> who are like all in their habits and both of them speaking at these churches. And you might be surprised, dear listener, to learn as well that uh, the evangelical vote was hugely split. There were a lot of evangelicals behind Bolsonaro, but also a lot of evangelicals behind Lula. And Lula tried really hard to court that vote. And, you know, the as again, we've talked about in the past on the show with Jim Hodgson, evangelicalism is different in Latin America in some ways uh, than it is here. And I think... Uh, one interesting thing about all that is Lula himself is Catholic and he understands the importance, I think, of, of trying to draw in that religious imagery in, in his organizing. And it came out in his victory speech, which I'll read a little bit about here. Um, so in his speech, he says, The new Brazil that we build on January 1st is not only of interest to the Brazilian people, but to all people who work for peace, solidarity and brotherhood anywhere in the world. Last Wednesday, Pope Francis sent an important message to Brazil, praying that the Brazilian people will be free of hatred, intolerance, and violence. I want to say that we wish the same, and we will work tirelessly for a Brazil where love prevails over hate, truth conquers lies, and hope is greater than fear. Every day of my life, I'm reminded of the greatest teaching of Jesus Christ, which is to love your neighbor, so I believe that the most important virtue of a good leader will always be love for his country and his people. As far as we're concerned, there is no lack of love in this country. We will take great care of Brazil and the Brazilian people. We live in a new time, one of peace, of love, and hope. Pretty standard boilerplate uh, politician speak, I guess, in some respects. But also, I don't think it's, like, insincere either. Like, Lula does see himself, I think, as a a politician of love and is invoking Pope Francis and Jesus in this interesting way. So, uh, yeah, maybe the time is ripe, too, for a a renewal of of Christian left politics in Brazil. I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is kind of boilerplate uh, politician speak. But it does seem like... I mean, it's probably because of my own particular biases and stuff, but it does seem like more legible and uh, it makes more sense than if, I don't know, uh, Barack Obama says it or whatever, <laughs> whoever. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it, it seems like it means something more from somebody who is like on the left um, and <laughs> seems to mean it. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about yeah. it. Well, 
here's a great transition. I'll give you something to say something about Matt. Oh, thanks. Um, so we've done all the takes. We've got the environmental take, the left take, all these takes. Uh, but it wouldn't be a Magnificast episode if we didn't throw an extremely weird continental philosopher in here oh, at boy. the end. Here we go. And uh, we're going to do it. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, what are we going to do to talk about Lula? And somewhere in my brain... Uh, some synapse thankfully fired at just the right moment to remind me that somewhere I had come across this place where Felix Guattari, a wild philosopher, took a trip to Brazil and talked with Lula and a handful of other people about religion. And so we went and we dug it up and we found it. It's true. The synapse didn't lie. And we pulled out a few a few pieces here. It's very funny to listen to Guattari talk about religion for a lot of reasons and also to listen to him talk to Lula. But Matt, why don't you tell us who Felix Guattari is, first of all, and then uh, we'll dive in here. <laughs> what a question to ask me 35 minutes into a podcast, 39 <laughs> minutes into a podcast. Jeez. Um, all right, folks. Uh, Felix Guattari um, of the French uh, postmodern philosophers is definitely one of my faves. Um, a problematic fave for sure, but definitely a fave. Um, is he French? Or, yeah, French, is, I guess. He is French. For some reason, I always think that he's Italian because of Guattari, but yeah, I guess he is French. Yeah, he's French, but he has probably like the biggest impact on Italian politics. Um, let's see. He is, he was born in like the, the 30s and like... Um, you know, he's, like, of that age and of that sort of, like, category of, of being, like, grouped in with all these, like, wild postmodern guys. So he's a contemporary of Foucault. Um, he's probably most well-known because he wrote these two books with another French philosopher named Gilles Deleuze called Anti-Oedipus. And then the other book is called The Thousand Plateaus. They're both, the, they're, they're both like, these connected works um, about capitalism and fascism. And they are, like incredibly hard books to read um, in the sense that like it, it's a whole language that you have to kind of learn yourself before you can kind of get into it. And I don't really recommend it to anybody unless you're a grad student, then go for it. Um, but uh, besides those things, uh, Guattari is a really interesting kind of like person in this postmodern milieu because he is like, I think the most of the, of these French guys, at least like the, the postmodern guy who is like the most outright political um, he is like definitely a Marxist, um, in a certain vein of Marxism. He's like more of like a left communist kind of guy. Um, he, uh, let's see, if you want to read a book by Felix Watari, you can go pick up a book called Communists Like Us. And he co-wrote it with Antonio Negri. Um, it's pretty cool, but he kind of lays out his idea about like what a revolutionary movement might look like. And it's very different than I think a regular Marxist take and pretty cool. Um, Besides all of that, he's extremely invested in, like, psychoanalysis. Um, and uh, so much so that he, like, he worked in a um, this really famous uh, clinic in France called Le Borde. And it's really famous. Maybe it's really infamous because um, it is, like, one of the <laughs> – it's a – it's <laughs> – it's a clinic that runs along the lines of democratic centralism. Like, no joke. It's like a <laughs> communist clinic. Um, and uh, it it's really an interesting project, though, because um, it's not like... Cause, because Guattari doesn't, doesn't want to get trapped in the, like, um, in the dichotomy or, like, the paradigm of being, like, uh, analyst and patient. So um, they run the entire clinic... Uh, as a democratic centralist project and like the patients there have some kind of like say in its functioning. So it's like a very, <laughs> it's a very it's democratic the communist large. It is. Yeah, it is. It's like an intentional community for people who, yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, so it's wild. Um, so let's see. I think like the, if, if you want to talk about like Guattari's like political ideas though, you have to kind of talk about the autonomia movement in Italy. That's kind of where they get played out the most, um, I think explicitly. Um, he has a lot to say about media and how to use media in sort of revolutionary movements. But like the big idea he has is called molecular revolution. Um, so the way he conceptualizes it is that there is like a molecular, uh, you know, the very small and the molar, which is, you know, very big. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> he thinks that like, basically what you need to do to form a revolutionary movement is 
organize the molecular so that it can impact the molar, um, which is, you know, not like that different than like the idea of community organizing, I think. But I think it was kind of like, um, it was a really important thing in the 70s, because, you know, it's not just about trade unions, it's not just about workers. But it's about like, how do you convince like, this like feminist group to like show up for your strike? How do you get the LGBTQ people to like, um, join in like a an alliance that might be like otherwise very shaky with people who are like trade unionists or something. So it's like you know try, how do you find ways to pull all these people into a cohesive group so that you can um, you know do something. <laughs> and uh, you know your mileage may vary for sure, <laughs> but I think it's interesting. <laughs> I I like Felix Watari a lot. Um, I think he's a really interesting guy. Uh, another reason I like him is because he you know he's like this weird. Uh, sort of like left communist guy and uh, he he's not just like stuck though in doing like academic philosophy like a lot of other postmodern philosophers he goes places like like Brazil um, and talks to people like Lula so that's pretty wild um, he rode a motorcycle he rode a mostly yeah that's true he rode a motorcycle um, he went to like Vietnam and like all kinds of other places too so it's like you know if you're gonna be like a, a French philosophy guy like Guattari is kind of like the cool one, I think, in my opinion. Um, but anyways, Dean, you, ha- yeah. you found this great interchange between Guattari and Lula. And I think it's actually really revealing, not only of the, like, poverty of Guattari's thought around religion, because he is uh, very much not religious, um, but you get to hear a lot of interesting things, I think, from Lula and other folks uh, about religion. Yeah, so this book, uh, what a great intro, Matt, first of all, to Guattari. Um, this book is called Molecular Revolution in Brazil, and basically, it's like a collection of a bunch of conversations that Guattari had in a visit he took to Brazil in 1982, which is the first year that there were democratic elections for the National Assembly, I think it was. Um, so di- the dictatorship didn't end till 85, but this was like ramping up to it, I guess. And so Guattari came to figure out what was going on. And it's pretty funny. I mean, there's lots of places where he talks about religion, actually. And his comments are kind of interesting. He obviously has Poland on the brain. And the whole time he's in Brazil, he just keeps filtering everything yeah. through Poland <laughs> in a way that's not very helpful. But uh, nevertheless, um, interesting stuff. So uh, I have a kind of thesis that I'm going to present here uh, about this conversation. So <laughs> the uh, the conversations all have dates. And there's a really funny kind of series of events. They don't tell you like what time or much of the context around them. But uh, there's this moment where Guattari says something about religion that I think is like kind of goofy. And then he has a conversation with Lula. uh, And they're both on the same day, September 1. And then later on September 11, he uh, has this other conversation, Guattari, and his opinion about religion is a lot more interesting. So I like to think that he like had this conversation with Lula and then thought harder about it for the next week. Uh, So anyway, um, here's the beginning and we'll maybe just pause after each piece. So uh, he's having this conversation with a guy named Nestor Perlonger, a person I could not tell you anything about. And uh, this person asks uh, Guattari the question, there's a third worldist theory which says that the church gives Marxism the spiritual dimension that Marxism doesn't possess. More a statement, I guess, than a question. (laughs) He offers (laughs) Guattari a chance to respond to that idea. Uh, So Guattari says, that explanation seems to me to be particularly absurd for the simple reason that, from many viewpoints, religious structures can be as authoritarian as bureaucratic Marxists. He goes on to say a lot more about that. And then he says, when I was young, I knew working class priests who gave up the church to engage completely in social activism, and within a few months had become the most bureaucratic characters one could imagine in that system. It's obvious that there are people in the church who are not like that, and who, for example, live in a real relation with the peasants, but the structures of the church that those people adopt remain completely conservative and reactionary, even when the church develops a policy of defense of human rights, which means that this democracy is only superficial and is subject to co-optation. So, uh, as you said, Matt, uh, a very not-religious person, Guattari, but also a bit of a, I don't know, anti-religious guy, too. And that's fine. I mean, whatever. He's not the first to feel that way. But I think somebody who also, for a person who thinks about molecular revolution, the, you know, the little kind of interesting tributaries of human activity and so on, it's a surprisingly reductive perception of religion Mm -hmm. right even when the church adopts this policy of human rights um its uh, democracy is only superficial which strikes me as um pretty strange to say in latin america in 1982 yeah i think so i think it's 
Um, it is definitely, like, evidence of some of his biases. You know, like, there's some ways that that could be true. I think that saying that the democracy is superficial is kind of, like, the bridge too far for me. Especially given, like, I think all of the experiences I've ever had with communists as well, though. Like, um, <laughs> I don't know, like, to say that uh, the democracy of uh, of the Catholic Church, or whatever, of liberation theology is superficial is frustrating because I don't know, I've seen I've seen the exact same co-optation, like the right wing co-optation of like Marxist stuff happen before. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like everyone was talking about MAGA communism like last week or whatever. So it's just like yeah. I don't know, is the democracy superficial there too or not? Like or is there something more nuanced going on in these cases? And I don't know. Uh Guattari just doesn't have the capacity to think that through, I think, at this point. Yeah. It's strange, too, because in 82, to say it in Latin America, you can't really have a uh, you can't rely on ignorance or kind of historical possibilities not being unfolded right. because, you know, like Nicaragua, like the Sandinistas are in power right now yep. at this time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's four priests in the government there. So <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. He had uh, he went to Brazil, uh, but he didn't get to go to Nicaragua, unfortunately, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Guattari has that conversation September 1. Then he also has another conversation with Lula on September 1. And uh, it's a bit a bit different. So Guattari is actually interviewing Lula in this case. And here is what Guattari says. There are a lot of Catholics in the Workers' Party, the PT. It's said that they even have the support of the Episcopate. What type of relation has the church established with your party? Would it be anything comparable to what exists in Poland between the religious hierarchy and the part of the Solidarity uh, Union leadership? Regular consultations, the church is an intermediary with established powers, and so forth. And Lula replies, no. That type of relation with the church does not exist here. What does exist is that since Puebla, which was a big conference of uh, Catholic bishops in, uh, in Mexico, the Brazilian church, or better yet, a part of the Brazilian church, decided to make a decision on the question of the organization of oppressed peoples. It was from that moment that the grassroots communities and the progressive bishops began to appear. And what happens is that the forms of organization they propose coincide with those of the PT. No, bishops lead, or no bishop leads Christians to sign up for the PT, but I believe that all the bishops, or at least a large number, lead Christians to adopt criteria for their choice of parties and candidates, and this too coincides with the political proposals of the PT. Now, any other party could adopt forms of organization similar to those we suggest, such that the current orientation of the church could benefit all. Hmm. Uh, like, literally a direct kind of contradiction, I guess, yeah. <laughs> of uh, of what Guattari was saying, which is to say, Lula was like, no, no, the, the church has adopted this deep democratic model. And in fact, like it only works for the PT because we also are trying to sort of move in a democratic direction. But, you know, there could be other parties that have a a democratic orientation. And I guess the church would be fine with that, too. So whereas Guattari is saying the democracy is superficial, uh, Lula is kind of kind of making an interesting point that the the base community model um, is maybe outrunning some of the political formations in Brazil. And the PT is unique in that it's, you know, sort of running parallel to that movement. So a pretty interesting counter maybe to uh, Guattari at some point in the day on September 1. Yeah, I mean, rather than democracy being superficial in in the church, I mean, it's not that democracy is superficial, but it's just like that. Uh, it's I mean, it, as is always the case, right? The, the people are ahead of these organizations, um, whether it's, you know, it, it, the people are leading the church in this way. And because that because the church has like decided to like open themselves up to that type of democracy, um, it works. And, you know, the Workers' Party, it benefits because it's their you know, following that lead. I, I don't know. It just, um, it's frustrating <laughs> to see that misunderstanding, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, like I said, uh, Guattari did, I think, reflect on this conversation uh, throughout his travels in Brazil. And by September 11, he has something else to say. And this quote is a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading. So at this time, someone asks this question. We've always seen the church as reactionary. Now in Latin America, it's become progressive. How can there be a relation with grassroots movements and with God at the same time? A completely wild question to ask Felix Guattari, by the way. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) Guattari says, I always go back to insisting on the need for a different kind of logic. Using classical logic, we would say that to be developing the two policies to which you refer is an act of duplicity on the part of the church and also on the part of anyone who plays along with the church to some extent in this respect. 
but it's precisely this notion of duplicity that should be changed. We should speak of triplicity, quadruplicity, multiplicity. On the one hand, there's the policy of the episcopate, which incidentally is also not homogenous. There's the policy of all levels of the Catholic hierarchy. There's the position of the practicing Catholic in the field, in different places, in urban and agrarian sectors. These positions are undoubtedly not decided in a Manichaean manner. The positions adopted now can undoubtedly change abruptly. The church is now going along with the progressive movement, but this partnership may be interrupted abruptly on the day when the clergy understand the gravity of its consequences. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My view is that it's difficult now to get one's bearings in this context, (laughs) having been told off by Lula days earlier. (laughs) Uh, What's possible and necessary is to identify what's happening here and now, but it's not possible to predict what's going to happen six months or two years from now. So the question presents itself in the following terms. Does the attitude of the Catholic Church, or the multiplicity of the attitudes of the Catholic Church, offer possibilities for constructing a new kind of instrument of social struggle or not? Within what limits are such possibilities being offered? What is there here and now that implies a threat of co-optation? What does this involve in terms of an establishment of devices that oppose the micropolitics of co-optation? Uh, he goes on to say a bunch more, but really that that's kind of the, the key, right? Like, um, <laughs> 10 days later, I think Guattari has kind of, you know, seen or admitted that maybe that knee-jerk reaction he had against the church is automatically reactionary isn't quite the right way to do it, right? There's not a Manichaean judgment you could make. It's not good or evil. Um, there's actually this sort of deep multiplicity going on in the church. And the better questions are, well, what does that make possible or impossible? What are the dangers and the openings that are presented in that kind of situation? So yeah. I think by the time uh, Guattari was leaving Brazil, at least, he seemed to uh, figure it out. <laughs> it's so funny because, um, let's see, this, this is in 1982. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So in, let's see, the early 70s, he worked with Deleuze to write Anti-Oedipus. And then in like, I think it was like 1980 or 1979, something like that, they wrote Thousand Plateaus, the the second part of that. The two like most impenetrable books of philosophy that I think are actually pretty profound. But here <laughs> here it is, Lula, this guy who's just a union guy, he, sent, he sits down with Guattari and sets him straight. <laughs> and Guattari listened, and I think that's the important piece of the puzzle here. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Um, it's interesting, man. That's a great, uh, a great grad, uh, grad school thesis, though, for somebody. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Guattari is uh, coming around to uh, to religion um, in in Brazil. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it is. Um, well, there you have it. As promised, it wouldn't be a Magnificast podcast without an extremely weird French philosopher at the end to really tie everything together. And here we have it, Lula, uh, not only making waves in 2022 in Brazil, but all the way back uh, 40 years ago, exactly, in 1982, <laughs> also uh, changing French philosophy. <laughs> what a guy. Uh, a, a long career. Um, yeah, I don't know, Matt, as a, a real Guattari scholar, what do you make of uh, of Lula's new victory? How can we uh, pull all these threats together at the end? I'm putting that burden on you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I think that uh, Lula is, you know, someone that, right, you, you have to have this kind of like cautious optimism, right? Because on the one hand, like he, uh, he and the coalition of people behind him defeat Bolsonaro, and I think that's amazing, right? In and of itself, it's great. Anytime a fascist loses, I'm happy about it. Um, but we have to recognize that, you know, there's um, a history that is also not unproblematic. So I don't know. There's a, a sort of cautious optimism, I think, that is warranted when it comes to Lula. Um, so I don't know. A lot of lessons to be learned up and down. Um He's a guy that knows how religion works in Brazil, though, and that's pretty heartening. Pretty cool to see that um, in the end. It is. He's a good Catholic president. Better than our Catholic president. That's true. Now, that's very interesting. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> Joe Biden saying something like this? No, you can't. <laughs> it is pretty wild. Uh, Trudeau's Catholic, Biden's Catholic, Lula's Catholic. There's a lot of Catholics out there in these big, giant economies. Um, and yet, here we are. Yeah. What what a troubling insight to leave at the end of this podcast on. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um if you if you support us on Patreon, that's cool of you to do. 
Um, if you don't support us on Patreon, that's fine. Um, the big thing that you get from Patreon, though, is you get an exclusive invite to our cool Discord channel. And occasionally, you get access to, uh, like, an early episode. But um, we've been very busy the last few weeks, so we apologize for not holding up that end of the bargain. <laughs> Um, but you do get to go in Discord and you can talk to us about Felix Kotari. You can talk to us about Felix Kotari all you want. Um, cool. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord